Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Thursday. Today we are talking to Monica Klein. She's got an amazing story, an amazing testimony. She used to be a family planning educator for Planned Parenthood. She was pro-abortion, pro-promiscuity, pro-every left-wing talking point about sex and gender and relationships that you can think of. And she went into schools and she educated kids about this. And now God has changed her life and she educates families about how they can disciple their children in what is good and right and true about God's design for gender, for sex, and for the family. So she is going to tell us what really goes on at Planned Parenthood, uh, the ideology that is driving the so-called comprehensive sex education that we are seeing in schools. And then she is also going to tell us how there is a better way. There's a better design and there is a better way to teach kids about sex. And that really comes down to a parent's responsibility to know what God says about these things and to teach our kids about it. You are absolutely going to love this conversation. You're going to be encouraged by it and enlightened as well. We'll get straight into it, but first let me tell you about Good Ranchers, our sponsor for this show. It's American Meat delivered right to your front door. We love Good Ranchers in our house, so check it out at GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. You'll get a discount on your order. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. Monica, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Can you tell everyone who may not know who you are and what you do? Oh, sure. Well, my name is Monica Liel Klein, and I'm the founder of It Takes a Family. It's an organization where I really teach families how to strengthen from within uh, strong moms and dads, or sometimes it might even be a single parent family. I was a single mom for nine years. And so my mission is to strengthen the family, um, have those parents teaching children God's creation for humanity, their identity, uh, God's purpose for marriage, family, and sexual intimacy, and to really strengthen that attachment within the family to protect those children so that they know how to give an answer out in the world. And you used to be a volunteer educator for Planned Parenthood. You were a Title X family planning training manager. You would go into schools, teach what's called comprehensive sex education. Tell us, before you tell us what that was like, how did you get into that realm? Yeah, so that was in the 90s, 1990s. That seems like so long ago now. It was. I mean, I was born in the 90s and I'm 30. So yeah, it's a long time ago now. Well, I was graduating from the University of Texas in Austin, and it was during the you know HIV epidemic. And so I wanted to do my part in my 20s to change the world and protect people, especially mm-hmm. the marginalized. And I had had people very close to me who had died because of Um, getting HIV and turning into AIDS and they passed on and so I decided that I was going to volunteer at an HIV organization that was doing prevention education in high-risk communities Um, and as soon as I volunteered and really got into public health education and training I thought it was really fascinating and I excelled at it and I was quickly hired And uh, so I became an HIV prevention 
educator in Austin, Texas, and I, you know, primarily our job was to reach out to people who were living high risk lifestyles, uh, men who have sex with men, as well as women of childbearing age. And, uh, and I, my job was literally to walk the streets 40 hours a week in high risk neighborhoods um, and talk about HIV, hand out condoms and give referrals to Planned Parenthood or to the STD clinic. Uh, or also, you know, once people found out their diagnosis, if they were HIV positive, to get them to case management and to health care. Okay. And how would you describe your worldview at this point? I know you're a Christian mm-hmm. now. Were you a Christian then? You know, I wasn't. I was, uh, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I'm Mexican-American. And really in my family, we're a very conservative, traditional Mexican-American family. And I was baptized as a Catholic, um, and but I never attended church. My parents didn't take us to church. Uh, they gave me a big white Bible and said, God exists. Here are the Ten Commandments. Commandments. Uh, they're good rules to live by. And that was pretty much it. Mm. Um, I saw my grandma, you know, praying in front of a statue of Jesus, lighting candles. Um, but I didn't really understand who God is or was. And I didn't understand who Jesus was. I just saw really in the Catholic faith, the symbolism, I just saw this man on a crucifix. I didn't, you know, it looked sad to me. So I didn't realize that Jesus was God and that he was strong. Um, and so Really, if I had a worldview, it was my own conservative family. And what I mean by conservative is that my parents were each other's best friends. They were with each other all the time. They were very devoted to their children. We were all together all the time. Uh, They were wonderful parents. Um, But I didn't really know what a godly wife or godly husband was supposed to look like. Uh, We never talked about uh, whether I should date. And if I did, what that would look like. Uh, We never talked about whether if I would get married and if I did, what kind of man I should marry, you know, so we didn't talk about those kind of things. Um, A lot of it was that we were in poverty. Uh, My dad had cancer and we were, I would say that we were a very strong, loving family, but we were in survival mode. Hmm. So really talking about the future and and marriage and things like that we didn't really talk about those things yeah so by the time i left that little farm town and went to ut austin i was very easily molded by the world Hmm. Um, and so by the time i started um, volunteering at this hiv organization i i was just really moved by compassion by love i wanted to help people Um, And in this realm of comprehensive sex education or public health education, really the belief is that you accept all things. You don't judge anybody. Um, You just serve everyone equally. Um, And so I was really taught to accept every lifestyle, every behavior, nothing was wrong. Just since we're talking about sex education, I was just taught just teach them how to do things safer yeah learn about their sexual behavior and then just teach them how to do it safer and then refer them to testing because inevitably they will get a disease and they'll have to get tested early in order to treat Um, so it really wasn't about avoiding risky behavior it was very much about accepting all behavior and really just kind of giving it a band-aid like here, yeah. here's here's a little bit of a, a hope use a condom lubrication but get tested yeah and when you started working with Planned Parenthood I've heard you say before that even at Planned Parenthood you 
wanted or you kind of felt the urge to tell the young people that you were mentoring and educating with comprehensive sex education about abstinence and about the importance of not having multiple sexual partners and yet your hand was kind of slapped and you were told, nope, that's not what we do here. So tell us a little more about that. Yeah, I think the reason I reacted that way is because, you know, the way I was raised, I I was always supervised by my parents. Um, It wasn't something that I grew up seeing young children being sexually active. Um, It wasn't an expectation and I didn't see that happening. So when Planned Parenthood and and the way I got to Planned Parenthood was through this organization that I was working with, the HIV prevention organization, they said, you need to go to Planned Parenthood so they can teach you how to give this same sex ed message, but to children. Mm. And so that's when Planned Parenthood started to mentor me. And they gave me all those case studies of children as girls, as young as 10 coming into the clinic. Um, And it's pretty graphic, Allie. I mean, from not only concerned about being pregnant, getting tested for pregnancy and disease, getting abortions, and even removing uh, toys from their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it was really, really horrendous. And to me, uh, when you're saying a 10-year-old girl coming in with these, you know, in these scenarios, that sounds like abuse to me. Right. Uh, And so obviously we need to intervene. We need to find out who's abusing her. Is she in an environment where this has become normalized and now she's consenting? Is she being trafficked? Is she being trafficked? You know, so all of that was going through my mind and immediately... Uh, the director of sex education of Planned Parenthood of Greater Austin, Texas, in that you know at that time, and she this pat- is still in the nineties. This is in the nineties. Yeah, she just patted me on the knee and she said, "No, honey, this is what they want, and we're not going to teach them not to have sex. We're just going to teach them how to do it safer." And she said, she, "This is what they want." So right. she wasn't concerned at all about consent or about who might be doing this to these girls. She was concerned about consent, but this is how they're concerned about consent, Allie. She's saying these girls are consenting. It's what they want. And this is why I take such an issue with consent language and Mm. consent education, because it's been twisted by comprehensive sex education. So they love the word consent. Consenting is I consent to do something. I say yes to something. So what they're really teaching our children when they talk about consent is how do you give a yes And so in their eyes, multiple times, not just during this time when this um, director was teaching me, I heard from multiple clinics that these young minor girls who were having sex with adult men were consenting, that it's what they wanted, which is why they would not report it and why they said they were not concerned. Right. Um, And so. And I, yeah, I've said that before, which of course a lot of progressives get angry at this, that consent is not enough when you're talking about virtue. When you're talking about whether something is right or wrong, the simplicity or the simplistic idea of consent, a yes or a no, is not enough. But basically, she was saying, yes, it is. If they say yes, it really doesn't matter the scenario. Don't ask, don't tell, right? It was very much a don't ask, don't tell. Um, And so when I later on, when I became a Title X training manager and I was teaching them about human trafficking and statutory rape and that it was now a federal offense, Planned Parenthood said, um, I I told, you know, they they kept telling me, like, Monica, they want this. This is what these young girls want. They want to be with adult men. So they didn't care if it was a 30-year-old guy. Raping, of course, that's the language I would use. They might say having sex with a 10-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. They didn't care. 
No, they didn't. Uh, this was in Corpus Christi. Uh, it was multiple uh, Planned Parenthoods from the southern area of Texas. And they assured me, I was teaching them on a key concept of their grant about human trafficking and that they needed to identify victims of human trafficking so that they could report them. How, my long history with Planned Parenthood at, at that time, I knew that they were not reporting statutory rape because they were very much believing that these girls were consenting. And so when they pushed back on not wanting to report it, I pushed back as well and said, well, it doesn't matter what your opinion is about whether they're consenting or not. The truth is, is that these girls are minors. You know, they're having sex with adults. You are responsible for reporting it, whether you agree with it or not. And that's when they said, Monica, if we don't ask, we don't have to tell. If I don't ask the age of her partner. I don't have to report it. Yeah. And so they knew what they were doing. They still know what they're doing. And it, and it's in Ali, it's really that their worldview is very distorted. So mm-hmm. their their view of our children, their view of sex is all very distorted. So they feel very justified in what they're doing. Yeah. Um, they think we're the ones that are being judgmental and they don't see that they're actually enabling the trafficking Abuse. of young girls. Yeah. And let's back up a little bit. So when you started with Planned Parenthood as a volunteer educator, you first kind of came in and you said, OK, well, great. I'm going to teach these nine and 10 year old girls about abstinence. That's what's going to protect them. They patted you on the knee and said, no, no, that's not what we're doing. Tell us what it looked like after that. You did. You started going into schools and you started teaching what Planned Parenthood wanted you to teach. And what was that exactly? Yeah, I I believe this educator, you know, this director. And I, I stepped back and I thought, well, the government is funding Planned Parenthood. This woman's obviously a professional um, it must be I didn't right. have it must be right. So I, I went ahead and did it. And um, I think one of the first times that I uh, taught young girls and this this is one that I haven't actually spoken about publicly before. Um, I was with my coworker who was more seasoned than me. And uh, we had these girls in middle school. And uh, we we didn't actually teach in the school. It was in a separate location. I don't remember if it was a club or not a nightclub, but, you know, just a separate building, a separate location. And one of the things that I remember about that particular teaching was the role playing. Mm. And so when parents talk about uh, or people talk about what condom demonstrations really look like mm-hmm. um, and what communication skills looks like. Like if you look at a curriculum, they say, oh, this is, communi- you know, we're teaching them healthy relationships and communication skills. This is what it really is. What it is, is when we taught them how to use a condom and this is just all girls, we sexualize it. It has to become eroticized. And so we tell the girls that um, back then I was telling the girls that many times their sexual partners may, and we always use gender neutral language. So we always said your sexual partner, even back then, back then we're using gender neutral language. So we basically said, you may have a sexual partner that doesn't want to use a condom. They're going to say it doesn't feel good. They don't want to use it, but you need to convince them to use it, which means that you're going to have to learn how to use this condom, how to put it on yourself and take charge. Um, But you can also make it feel good. And so then we would teach them how to eroticize it, how to put it on in an erotic way, how to make sure it feels good just in putting it on. Nine, as young as nine year old girls. Yeah, this was middle school and high school. 
And so I guess the justification that a lot of sex educators give is that, well, they're already doing it. They're already thinking about it. They're already talking about it. We're just teaching them how to do all these things in a safe way, but in your safe, quote unquote. Um, But in your experience, I mean, are nine and 10 year old girls thinking about this already or are sex educators putting these ideas and these scenarios into their minds it gets put into their minds they're not thinking those things already they really are not um i think especially back then in the 90s before the you know uh, what we have now with the internet Internet, yeah um they really were not thinking those things these things were all new to them and i would say that there's still even some girls today where a lot of this is very new to them um you know, the next step after teaching them that was to teach them how to talk about it, how to eroticize it through role playing. Um, if if the sexual partner gave this reason why he didn't want to use it, how could she in a fun way, yeah. you know, you know, respond so that he would want to. Um, and so and, and then we would make them role play that with each other so that they would practice the language. And so what I tell parents today is, listen, this is just it's not just showing them a condom. It's them actually doing the motions and using it. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, it's doing the role playing. So now they're acting it out. Now they're also speaking it. So this is all just really the grooming process of yes. teaching them how to do this to make sure that when they're in that situation, that's what they've practiced. Well, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. I mean, you're going to do what you practice. If I invite you to come over with your girlfriend so I can teach you how to bake a chocolate cake, I expect that when you leave my house, you're going to go home and bake a chocolate cake. And so it's the same thing with comprehensive sex education. You know, a lot of them are saying, you know, comprehensive sex educators like, oh, we're not teaching them to have sex. That's still their choice. But really, that is exactly yeah. what's what's coming. And there's studies that show that. Yeah. You know, where there's polls of kids who say that they do feel pressured uh, to become sexually active after going through comprehensive sex yeah. education. And because they believe that that is now the expectation. That's what I've been taught. And as I continue to teach teens, at one point, the teens actually responded that way. They actually told me that. There was a situation with, um, and I don't know if you've heard this particular story, but um, I was teaching these kids in an alternative school, and again, middle school, about 13 years old, and it was boys and girls. And I did the usual, you know, um, I would walk in, there was a whiteboard, and I would list the different forms of sex, anal, vaginal, oral. So right away, the kids are thinking, okay, well, those are the three things I'm supposed to do. Uh, Then I wrote down the three bodily fluids that transmit HIV or other STDs, so blood, semen, and vaginal secretions. So now, okay, I'm going to be in contact with blood and all of those things. We're having the conversation about transmission and how to reduce the risk by using condoms, lubrication, things like that. And a little girl raises her hand and she asks me, and I'll, I'll clean up her language, but even, you know, it'll still sound graphic. She, she just basically said, you know, when I'm involved in this sexual activity, I gag. Can you teach me how to do it better? And that even then oh, I had heard so many stories from adults on the street everywhere. I mean, I, I had heard it all. But, you know, when you hear a little girl say something like that to you, even me, maybe not another sex educator, but it really did take me aback. I was just very, yeah, it was was very jarring. So um, I repeated the question to her because I wanted her to hear what she had said and then clarify what she thought about it. 
And so I said, okay, what I hear you saying is that when you're involved in this activity, you have this reaction and you don't like that reaction. She said, that's right, I don't like it, but if you teach me how to do it better, maybe I will. And then I said, have you ever considered just not doing the thing that you don't like? If you don't like it, you don't have to do it. Let's start there. And all those kids turned around and looked at me and they didn't look judged. They didn't look like they had just shut down and put up a wall because Planned Parenthood always says, or anyone in comprehensive sex education, seek us, advocates for youth. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. Um, they always said, if, if you if you say anything like that, you're going to make them feel judged and they're just going to shut down and they're not going to share with you anymore. Well, these kids didn't look shut down. They just looked at me like, whoa, tell us more about that. Yeah, like maybe they were relieved that, hey, another option is that you ha- don't have to do any of these things. Exactly. And you can actually eliminate the risk altogether. And, because yeah. when you only present the risks, you think, well... This is inevitable. I mean, these are the risks and I'm going to engage in it. And these are just the risks that I have to choose from. But you can actually choose not to put yourself at risk at all. And basically, you were told you're not allowed to tell them the no risk option. Exactly. Because because it's not loving. It's not compassionate. And it's judging. It's not empathetic. So they really guilt you into thinking that you can't teach kids the best for them. So when I noticed their response... I said, guys, do you realize you don't have to have sex at all? Do you realize? And I pointed at the board. I said, you don't have to have anal sex, oral sex, or vaginal sex. And if you don't, then I pointed to the board again. You won't be in contact with anyone's blood, semen, or vaginal secretions. And if you don't, then you don't have to worry about disease or pregnancy. And the little girl, the same little girl raised her hand again. And she said, ma'am, no one's ever told us that. Wow. And what was really interesting is these kids literally huddled together and started talking about ways that they could avoid sex. They didn't use the word abstinence and they didn't say, let's avoid sex. They just started to talk about things that they could do with each other that didn't have to do with touching each other's private parts. Like, um, you know, this was in in a in a community that was that was very poor and they had a community center and government housing and they had free movies and snacks and so that was one of the suggestions that the kids made is let's go to the community community center and watch free movies and snacks and then it's just incredible that this is like a novel idea to them yeah that they could actually like prolong their innocence by doing things that kids are supposed to be doing was this a light bulb moment for you you know it was I would I wouldn't say that it was when I changed completely but it really was and um, these kids came up with amazing ideas of how to practice abstinence without using the word abstinence um, they actually came up with ideas that Planned Parenthood would not call, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Planned Parenthood talk about abstinence, but they talk about things like, oh, if, if you want to abstain from sex, you can do mutual masturbation. You can touch yeah. over your clothes. Like these kids were talking about watching movies, playing basketball. Amazing. A little girl did pull away from the group and came up to me and she whispered and she said, I can't do what they're doing. And uh, I said, well, why not? And she said, well, because I'm already sexually active and everyone expects me to do it. So now I can't stop. It's part of her identity. It was part of her identity. But the fact that she came up to me and said that what she was really doing, and this is what as adults we can see in our children, she was really asking me if that was true. Yeah. And I said, honey, no one can tell you that you have to be sexually active 
I assured her that she could stop having sex and 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 not have sex again ever if she didn't ever want to do it again or until yeah. she got married until she decided and she smiled brightly and joined the group. Yeah. Um, these kids are waiting for us to lead. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for their parents to lead. Mm-hmm. They're waiting to hear any voice of authority to tell them you don't have to be involved in these high risk activities. Yeah. And Ali, you know, this consent education has me worried. Um, and, and I know it has a lot of people worried, but I want I just mentioned this to some parents the other day. What's happening with consent, education, and the law are two things. The more that comprehensive sex educators talk about consent with children or teach children consent, we're normalizing the idea that children can even consent to sex. Our laws, based on our morality, is that children cannot consent to sex until they are adults. Right. So the matter what, it does not matter exactly if they say that they consent to it or whatever the predator says to justify that kind of interaction, they cannot consent because they don't have the capacity really to do so. That is what our law says. And that is why we have the law, because they don't have the capacity to make that kind of decision and the consequences of those decisions. So it's it's a good law. So why are we teaching children how to have sex through comprehensive sex education if the law says that they're not even allowed to consent to sex? Why are we teaching them to consent when the law says they can't consent? Yeah. And a big part of that is because it's starting to normalize it in the community. So now the teachers, the parents, whomever, legislators are believing, oh, well, if we're teaching consent, then maybe we need to adjust the law. And then, so now we see California reducing the age yes. of consent to 14. Yeah. A 14-year-old now, and, and it was specifics, uh, Representative Weiner passed this yep. because he specifically said that there was uh, young gay boys who were having sex with adult gay men and it shouldn't be illegal. Yeah. I mean, and that it, was it really the premise just, of it. And, and in addition to that, it was also that if the gap was just 10 years, then that adult would not have to, does not have to register as a sex offender in the state of California. So we're even talking about a 20 year old and a 10 year old. We're talking about a 25 year old and a 15 year old. If the gap is only 10 years, says, yeah. Yes, his name is Wiener, and it's just wild. But that's what his bill now law says, that you don't have to register for a sex offender as long as the gap is 10 years. And he did specifically say that this is advocacy that he's doing on behalf of the LGBTQ community, which, again, is kind of a tell, right? It, it is. It is. And, and I think that that... That is one of the things that I'm telling parents as they're working with legislators, and I want legislators to understand, the more we normalize consent language and education to our children and to the public in general and in our, in a, in our public health initiatives, we are now giving permission for those kind of laws. So if we're used to believing that children can consent to sex and that children truly have sexual rights to sexual pleasure as minors, then why won't a state legislator pass consent laws that reduces the age of consent? And all it's doing is giving predators a lot more ammunition, a lot more protection to be attacking our children and harming our children. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I talked to a, a friend of mine who's a, a survivor of human trafficking. 
And she now is a counselor and she counsels young girls that have been rescued from human trafficking. And I asked her about consent language. And she admitted to me that she couldn't speak out against consent language because she'd be fired. Mm. Because even in the trafficking community, they talk about consent. And I so And obviously consent is good. It's been twisted, right? It's, I mean, obviously consent is a good thing, especially, you know, when we're talking about like to adults, like, I mean, of course we believe in consent and consent is important. The right. point is that it is being used as the exclusive gauge of good and bad sexual interaction that as long as someone consents then everything else is fine. regardless of age right well it was interesting the more we talked she said well monica i'll admit that when i work with the girls who've been rescued from trafficking i actually don't teach them consent i teach them refusal skills she said i teach them how to say no with no justification a powerful no And that they don't have to give a reason why they say no. Yeah. And she said, in the trafficking community, traffickers are masters at getting the children to consent. Mm. And and she's like, and you see it. You see a young child leave school and on their own go to wherever the trafficker told them to go to be with an adult and then go home and then go to school the next day. And, it, and they're consenting to it. Um, there's a book called Pimpology. Not that I want to advertise that. But it's literally a pimp who wrote a book, a how-to book on how to be a pimp. And he's really serious about it. And he, in that book, also talks about that. About how he can get women to do whatever he wants. They're consenting and they're loyal. And so this consent or the tactic of consent or however we want to use that term has been twisted into something that it should have never been. But it's something that we need to be very careful about as we're looking at legislation, as we're looking at education standards, because currently the way the national sex education standards and and all the organizations that adopt those standards are using consent are actually very dangerous for our children. And we need to look out for that. When you mentioned that, you mentioned on your site and you've mentioned here, 40 percent of students say that they feel pressured. Teens say that their federally funded sex education program made them feel pressured to have sex. What we know about all people, but in particular kids whose minds are just more malleable than the adult mind, is that the power of suggestion is really Strong. You suggest an idea that they weren't considering before, whether it's an innocent idea like, hey, do you want a cupcake? They can't stop thinking about that. They weren't thinking about it before. They would have been satisfied with their broccoli. But now you've suggested the cupcake. That's all they can think about. And so it's the same thing, of course, with uh, even more kind of like tantalizing subjects. You're suggesting things to those kids. It gets in their head. And I have also said this about things like so-called gender identity. We kind of hear the same thing that, oh, well, a kindergarten teacher needs to be talking to these young kids about different forms of sexuality and orientation and different pronouns and different identities because it's natural for them to be thinking about these things anyway. And, oh, we're just educating them. We're just showing them the options. Uh, Another word that is used very often that I think is a Trojan horse, kind of like the a newfangled form of consent is inclusion. We're just being inclusive. We're teaching empathy. In reality, you are putting kids down a path 
of confusion that I think probably causes a lot of psychological distress, if not physical distress down the line. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, comprehensive sex education and the approach of it, 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 it is very much sexualization. And so as you're talking about, you know, different orientations, what I, you know, the CDC actually, I'm very protective of, of youth who have same-sex attraction. The CDC says that children who have same-sex attraction or identify with same-sex attraction are actually at higher risk of getting diseases, uh, having sexual violence. Um, they're, they're at higher risk than their heterosexual peers. My belief is in order to protect those children as well, we need to also teach them how to avoid sex. It doesn't matter if you just want to take a public health approach to this. It doesn't matter what the child, how the child is attracted. The truth is, is that all children deserve to be protected from sexualization. And what I witnessed and, you know, the HIV prevention group that I worked with was a gay organization. And so I I spent many years just in, in the gay community and I would help out at the different teen groups. And every teen uh, gay group or LGBT group always had a big glass bowl of condoms, a big glass bowl of lubrication, and a catalog to good vibrations, sex toys. And these were all children. And they're being sexualized. And, they're, and, and it is very predatory. And I don't believe that any child, regardless of how they identify, should be put into a position where they are being sexualized and and shown that this is what's expected of them. It's not right. Our children deserve to be children. Um, so, you know, and that's just a public health approach. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, these are moral issues. There's there are many people that I work with that say, Monica, don't make this a moral issue. Well, it is a moral issue. It is a moral. It issue. is a moral issue. Uh, the national sex education standards are based on morality. It They're is a secular worldview. Right. It's someone's worldview. It is secular humanism and it is a moral issue. Um, and so we the truth is, is that our families are diverse. Every family has different morality and it's not the school's job or the government's job to be pushing that kind of morality on other families. Our public school system should be about math and science and history. Right. Uh, it's not about morality and emotions and mental health. Yeah, um, that That is not their role. It's not their lane. And they're overstepping. And really, they're causing more damage to our children and families than they are helping. Mm. Yeah, you raise a really good point. Very often we hear all forms of public education and the history that's being taught, the sexual education that's being taught, we're told that it's just, it's neutral. But really, there is no neutrality when it comes to this. Everything speaks to a particular worldview, especially when you're talking about something like sex, the comprehensive sexual education curriculum that is in schools, as you said, speaks to the worldview of the people that um, like those that you first interacted with when you kind of entered this realm back in the 90s. People who think that consent is just a simple yes, and that needs to be taught to children that don't ask, don't tell. People who apparently think that the innocence of children is just kind of 
a myth mm-hmm. um, and isn't something to be protected, that sex is just like any other behavior. You do it. There are some mitigation strategies that you can put into place, but hey, have your fill. Doesn't really matter. So it really goes back to what they believe about human beings, what they believe about human nature, what they believe about morality that is directly opposed to what we believe as Christians, that all people are made in the image of God, no matter who they are. Therefore, they have value. Therefore, what happens to their body matters. But if you believe that we're just clumps of cells, which Planned Parenthood obviously does, then of course, why would you care? about someone's behavior and how it leads to destruction. So everything speaks to a worldview. And your particular position is that parents are the ones who are supposed to be discipling their kids in this kind of thing. They're the ones who are supposed to be implementing their worldview, correct? It is, absolutely. And I came to that conclusion after I finally left that field of work. And, and I was really seeking out God for answers. And, and, and one of the things that he reminded me. Sorry, of, let me pause. What what was the tipping point? What made you leave? Uh, well, OK, so I shared the story of, you know, teaching the um, Planned Parenthood in South Texas in Corpus Christi. And that was really my last straw when I saw multiple Planned Parenthoods admitting to me that they did not believe girls who were being preyed on by adult men for sex were not victims of human trafficking and that they wanted it and that perhaps they were even satisfied by it. That was my last straw. Um, I went back to my office, told my supervisor about that, let her know that they refused to protect victims of human trafficking. She got mad at me, told me if I wasn't pro-choice, which is interesting that she used those words. If I wasn't pro-choice, I didn't belong there. And you weren't even talking about abortion. I wasn't, but... You know, Allie, it's all linked together. Yeah. Because sex education, as you were just saying earlier, about how we view our bodies and our identities, comprehensive sex education that espouses or does espouse um, and, and adopts the national sex education standards is very much about our bodies don't mean anything. Everything Mm -hmm. is about sexual pleasure. And if you go through their standards, that's all it's about. It's anything goes kind of mentality from birth to tomb. And so what I teach people today... From before birth. I mean, really before birth, when you think about it. And it is, I mean, it is all connected for sure. Yeah, but what happens is that when we teach our children comprehensive sex education and we teach them that they that their bodies are just things and that you just kind of push some buttons to get some kind of pleasure out of it you're really teaching our children how to dehumanize each other and mm-hmm. that's what they're doing they're objectifying themselves they're object- objectifying one another and then it becomes a natural next step to dehumanize the preborn child through abortion and so it's all connected there's a reason why Planned Parenthood is also one of the largest providers of sex education it's their marketing tool for abortion you and have to therapy. groom and hormone therapy now all connected but that also says that the body doesn't matter that you can identify and say who you are no matter what your body says exactly and all of it is to destroy god's creation for humanity and marriage and identity and family and sexual intimacy it's a direct attack on his creation Um, and so we see this happening and we go back and, and we start to wonder, you know, how, how is this happening? Why is it that family is so important? And that's one of the first things that God showed me is that he reminded me of something that Planned Parenthood would always tell me at the various conferences that I went to where I was training them. And they would always say, Monica, parents are a barrier to service. 
As soon as a parent knows that their kid is coming to a Planned Parenthood, we never see that kid again because their parents Parents take them out. Parents are a barrier to service. Parents are a barrier to service. And Allie, you're going to see this language in legislation. Mm -hmm. So now with the trans movement and wanting to transition children's bodies with puberty blockers and surgery, the bills literally say that parents are a barrier to the health care of their children. We're going to start to see this in mental health bills as well, that the government or the school knows better and that parents are really a barrier. And and a lot of this, and I don't know if you've watched The Mind Polluters, and it's it's a film that I'm in as well, but we really talk about how this is happening in the schools with sex education, social emotional learning, the data mining of our children, how they're being mentally manipulated, how their emotions are being manipulated, all to conform to something that the government is wanting. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, except that the proof is there. We're seeing it in the schools today. We're seeing teachers leaving the schools because they don't want to be a part of it. Uh, And then we're seeing those who stay are compromising to it. And so we're just seeing that these programs and these approaches are meant to destroy the family. Yeah. To tear them apart. You don't have to go to your parents to go to the doctor. You, We can show you how to do it without your parents' consent or knowledge. It's now called adolescent confidentiality. Um, you know, what? there's all kinds of terms that they're using, but they're basically wanting to give, quote unquote, our children their own sexual rights, their own rights to be able to do these things without parental knowledge. To liberate them from the parent, whether it's a COVID vaccine or other vaccines, um, we're seeing that parents more and more are being, there's they're creating a wedge between parents and their children. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons I started It Takes a Family many years ago, is I realized that if Planned Parenthood is saying that parents are barrier to service, what they're really saying is we're afraid of parents. Yeah. We're afraid of families who actually talk to their children and who care about what their what their children are up to. Parents who actually have a good attachment to their children, that's who they're afraid of. And so that's what we need to be doing is we need to focus back on this issue of fatherlessness. We need to start talking more about um, you know, how do we strengthen our marriages? Yeah. How do we strengthen the role of the wife and the role of the husband? How do they then learn their role as parents? And how do the children understand their role within the family and their purpose and their value mm-hmm. within the family? I've met even Christian families who have said, or even asked my permission, Monica, is it okay if I look at my child's phone? Why are families, adults, or even Christian adults, asking if it's okay to look at a child's phone? We obviously have lost our identity or our understanding of what it is to be a parent. And so when we can start strengthening families, uh, not only by understanding our role and our authority and the power that we have, I mean, here's the truth. A lot of times people say, well, you know, kids don't really want to listen to their parents and they're going to roll their eyes and they don't listen to parents anymore. Well, all that is false. Do they roll their eyes? Yes. Do kids really want boundaries being set by their parents because it makes them feel loved? Absolutely. When in college, I also worked at a children's shelter. All these children had been abused and now lived in this home and we were their house parents. And no matter how awful of a history I read, on each of those children, 
there was one thing that that child wanted more than anything else, and it was to go back to mom and dad. Mm. It didn't matter what had happened to them, that strong draw to be with your biological parents and to have them love you and protect you is so strong. And I say that to parents every day that, and within our families as well, our children are waiting for us to lead. They're waiting for us to set boundaries for them. They're waiting for us to have conversations with them. And so that's part of what I do with It Takes a Family is I help parents understand the culture, what is going on, understand the studies, so that when when the topic comes up, whether they bring it up or their child brings it up, they're able to speak intelligently about what's happening in the world and give their children an answer. Because what we're hearing now is that children are learning at the school about all these different ideologies, and they're being told that parents are just outdated old-fashioned they don't understand and they're literally coming home and being very uh, demeaning to their parents acting as though the parents don't know anything Mm -hmm. but when a parent can then say I know a thing or two about this movement or this ideology and let me tell you more about what happens when someone transitions because I read in the New Atlantis about this then all of a sudden you can take your authority back and you can give your child truth and now they're able to give a proper loving and compassionate response in the world as well. And it's also so important for parents to really be proactive in this rather than reactive, because I do think that you have a leg up as a parent if you are the first one to talk to your kid about something, obviously, when it's age appropriate based on their maturity level and you disclose the information that you want to disclose based on the situation, which is another reason why it should be parents introducing these topics, because you do have the authority, you have the best interest of your child's body and mind at heart, you know particularly where they are you can know are their friends already talking about this stuff do they have friends that are behaving in this way or are they totally not thinking about this stuff at all is this not on their radar and so it's not time for me to talk about that but really only the parent knows which is another reason why that is not the role of the state it's not the role of the school which unfortunately that's basically the same, the state and the school right now that is giving this comprehensive sex education. Um, But parents, as you said, having the confidence to talk to their kids about it first when it is time and when it is appropriate and how it is appropriate um, is so important because kids are looking for that. They're looking for those parameters. They're looking for someone to give them clarity in a world that is so chaotic and confusing. They are. They're looking for clarity and they're looking for the ideal. I get that a lot Mm. from um, young people in their 20s. Like they're asking Miss Monica, what what is the ideal for marriage? What is the ideal for relationships? What is the ideal for parenting? They want the ideal. They want to know. They want some clarity and they want a good standard. Uh, They recognize that comprehensive sex education is not good enough. It's really setting the bar really, really low. Uh, And they're tired of it. They want real relationships with people. Uh, and And our children do too. And you're absolutely right, Allie. Only a parent knows what their child is ready to hear. Um, When I was teaching my son, I asked, you know, he would ask a question about his body or where do babies come from, things like that throughout his life. And and I would let him know, I'm going to answer that question 
as as fully as I can for your age right now, you know, the way I think, you know, what, what you're ready for. I said, but even in my answer, if at any point you don't want to hear anymore, just raise your hand, say, mom, that's enough. And I won't ask you any questions. We'll just move on. And he did that at least three times in his life. Just let me know, mom, that's enough. That's enough. That's yeah. enough. And it would be like, you know, three, six months later, he'd ask again. And then he was ready to hear a little bit more. You're not going to get that in the classroom at all. You know, we, we've heard stories of kids fainting in some of these classrooms because Ugh, it was it so was sad. the image imagery that they were showing them was too That's much yeah. um we've had you know cases where kids who've been sexually abused as children who then go through comprehensive sex education and it actually triggers their ptsd of course, of course. because they're talking about things that actually happen to them as, as little kids um, or we have children who are being abused who now learn comprehensive sex education in such a quote-unquote positive way and they can't distinguish between what's happening to them as abuse versus that they're supposed to be sexually active at this age and they get very confused so this does not belong in the schools yeah and i would also just really encourage parents that even if you were to seek out sex education do not seek out comprehensive sex education you have to ask yourself what are your standards? What are your beliefs? Do you have a worldview? I think about this a lot because I didn't really have a strong worldview when I went to college. So then I realized, well, if I did have a strong worldview, um, then I would know what to base it on. I would know what what I would consider to be appropriate or not appropriate for myself. And parents need to be asking themselves those kind of questions. I think the other thing I tell parents that's really important is just because we teach our children, uh, let's say a, a Christian standard, God's creation for man and woman, male, female, identity, marriage, family, and sexual intimacy. You, we need to also recognize that our children are sinful just like we are. And they're, go they have, they're on their own journey and they're going to make their own decisions at some point. It's important for us as moms and dads to figure out today, how will I respond if my child does see pornography? How, how will I respond if, the, if this does happen? You know, I've had parents say that, you know, they taught their children about, you know, waiting until marriage and maybe a child decided not to do that. Um, and now all of a sudden they had to face that reality. And it wasn't to allow that child to continue in that behavior. If anything, those parents said, well, now we had to set up new boundaries to protect our child from doing that again. And so these are things that parents need to be thinking about because the last thing we want to do is that when our child does fall, that we're going to judge them, get mad at them in such a way that they may shut down altogether. So we want to be able to be proactive to know how to offer uh, forgiveness and grace and new boundaries to help protect our children and help them to grow into adulthood. Yeah, I have a few more questions for you about that, but I do want to back up a little bit and hear more about your journey personally. You said that you were seeking God, asking him questions after you stopped volunteering at Planned Parenthood and stopped being a family planning educator. Um, what did that look like? What did the road look like from that to where you are now? That's a big about face. Yeah. Well, I didn't just teach comprehensive sex education. I adopted the philosophy in my life. So I was a promiscuous young adult. 
um, I, I, I just took on the full philosophy of that. I objectified myself. I objectified other people. Um, I believe Planned Parenthood, when they said it was empowering, that I was an empowered woman. I was independent. I could get mine. Um, it was always also... Uh, that men were bad and selfish, and so women had to get theirs and treat them just as selfishly as they treated us. Feminism. <laughs> and Right. So I believed in all those things. And every time I would fall into a depression because I really didn't like what I was doing, I would then remember all the things that Planned Parenthood told me. You're independent. You're a strong woman. Uh, and that was how I'd make myself feel a little better temporarily. And it never really worked. I say all that to say that I eventually did find myself facing an unplanned pregnancy. And I immediately scheduled an abortion because that's what this education teaches. It's an automatic. Um, you don't stop to think, this is a child. I'm a mom. You don't think those things. No. You literally just think, oh, abortion. Okay, and they just train you not to even think about the moral mm. question. And that's still what we hear in the media today. It avoids the moral question or the wrestling that women have and should have when it comes to ending the life of a human being. Right, right. But we're also not teaching people about pregnancy we're not teaching about fetal development so that's not in you know? so in comprehensive sex education they're not talking about how pregnancy happens and fetal development you would think that that would make it in the comprehensive part a little bit but not in the way that i'm suggesting in other words if parents were to really teach their children about pregnancy and that pregnancy means you've become a mom or a dad because <laughs> you've conceived a child with a woman, so you become a dad, um, or even fetal development so that they understand that life begins at fertilization. If we had some of those things, if we, and this is why we're seeing the, the you know, like students for life and the younger generation being so powerful with their pro-life message is because through technology, they witness their siblings in their mother's wombs, you yeah. know, so they got to see that. They got the education that life begins at fertilization. And so they have this respect for life. Um, and so, but when through comprehensive sex education, you're not going to see that and you're not going to hear that. You're just going to talk about prevention, period. And, um, and I won't share the details of what that looks like unless you want me to. But we talk about it in such a way that you just don't want the sperm to get into the vagina yeah. kind of thing. Um, but that's it. And then if it does, you have an abortion. It's literally, that's it. That's it. So I scheduled my abortion and um, I ended up calling a good friend of mine who I had actually gone to an abortion clinic with her in college and she she had her abortion. Um, it was a horrific event. It took all day, seven in the morning till seven at night. Um, it, it was it was a very depressing, horrible experience to be at that abortion clinic in Austin. And this was your abortion or your friend's abortion? This was abortion my friend's abortion. In college. Okay. Right. And so I witnessed her go through that. And so when I scheduled my abortion, she's the first person I called because I knew she would understand. And so all I knew about abortion from my girlfriends was that they were very quiet about it, but they were also very depressed about it. They just never talked about it. Yeah. So we would just sit in silence and care for whoever just had the abortion. Um, so I called her. I called her for that weird support to do something that no one really talked about. Validation. Just maybe. validation. Yeah. Just, you know, okay, you're going to be good, you know, kind of thing. And at this point, she was married and had her first son. 
And when I told her I was pregnant, she started celebrating on the other end of the phone. And I said, no, no, there, there is no celebrating. I scheduled an abortion. And she was like, oh, forget about that. And she just continued to like, Allie, do you have a friend that when you talk to her on the phone or in person, you can't get any word in edgewise because she just talks nonstop. Talk so much, yeah, yeah, and she's really excited. <laughs> this was my friend. She was so excited mm. that she just would not let me speak. And she just went on and on and on about my baby. And she started to just imagine her as a little at first as a boy and then as a girl and what if she has your eyes and what if she has your personality and you know wow. a little Moniquita and she just continued to imagine my child until I started imagining my child and you hadn't even thought about it really like no. that and were you with the father um, I had moved in with my boyfriend and I had been disowned by my parents because I moved in with my boyfriend. Because mm. even though we didn't go to church, we were a traditional family right. and you do not move in with your boyfriend. Mm. So, um, yeah, so all of a sudden I started, as she was celebrating on the phone, I started thinking to myself, why am I, why am I doing this? Why? And for the first time, all of a sudden I asked myself, why am I going to kill my baby? And I answered myself. I said, well, my parents just disowned me for moving in with my boyfriend. They're going to be really mad when I tell them I'm pregnant. And I thought, am I really going to kill my child because my parents are going to be mad at me? Like, this is not the last time they're going to be mad at me. And it just all of a sudden, I just changed. And I, yeah. I told my friend, you're right. I'm, I'm going to have this baby. And she said, well, of course you are. And so, of course, I, I canceled that abortion. And, and I did have my son and it was a great pregnancy, but what had happened is that there really wasn't a real commitment in my relationship. And that relationship had been based on a lot of objectification. Um, it was not a solid relationship. It was just kind of more convenient. Did I feel love? Yes. Um, but it was not founded on any kind of commitment and he did not want to be married. Mm. Um, and How so- How did he feel when you told him, yeah, I'm keeping the baby? Um, he, well, one, he did what, what men are taught to do. Um, he just said, whatever your decision is, I'll support. Yeah, uh, I hear that a lot and men yeah. think that they're being virtuous. Exactly, and so that's what he said. And then when I told him I was going to have the child, he he was not negative about it at all. Um, mm -hmm. He did say, are you sure about this? Because I'm about to tell my mom and if and she'll be happy about it. And if you change your mind, it'll devastate her. And yeah. I said, no. I, that passivity goes back to the Garden of Eden, man. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still passivity. So but I said, no, I, I do. I'm going to have this child. And she was. She was very happy. His mother was very happy. Um, but he the reality of having a child really hit him. And he just couldn't handle that. And so by the time my son was two years old, he left and left us on our own. And um, but what's interesting is that, you know, the relationship wasn't healthy. Um, he was gone most of the time, uh, very unfaithful. Uh, so there was a lot of darkness in our household. And when my son turned a year old, um, in that first year of his life, I had a lot of depression and I sought out a lot of new age things. Mm. Um, and then one day I just, it's hard to explain, but I realized that God had been intervening in my life, protecting me and was asking me to be part of his family. 
And I was, Ali, I was not one of those people who would accept Christ. If you had come up to me and asked me if I knew Jesus, I probably would have cursed you out and told you to get out of my face. You were hostile. I was a very hostile person. I was. And Planned Parenthood, I imagine, kind of fosters that and encourages that attitude. They probably see Christians as crazy fundamentalist. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a barrier to service, they might say. Right, right. Yeah, you're judging. uh, Christians are judging. um, And so, and then mean and hateful. So um, I... I only I only knew of one church in Austin, Texas. There's lots of churches, but I only knew of one. And I went to that church. I took my son with me and I I accepted the call by the pastor and I accepted Christ as my as my savior. And I got home and I told my boyfriend, I said, I think I just got saved. I think that's what that means. And I wasn't sure if it meant that or not. And so every time I went to church, I kept doing the same prayer over and over again because I was so afraid it didn't stick. Um, But I never left. And so for that first year of being a Christian, my son was with me at church every Sunday. I was in the word every day. And there was such a spiritual battle. And the closer I got to Christ, the worse his father got until finally one day he just left. Mm. And I was very devastated. And I was at the park with my son. I was doing all the things that I always did with my son. I was a very devoted mother. Um, That changed me. Just knowing that I became a mom, I became my own mom. I did everything my mom did, which I I just was committed to my child. And uh, and all of a sudden, one day at, uh, at a park by myself with my son, I was crying that I was all by myself. And all of a sudden, I realized, well, nothing's changed. He was never with us anyway. Yeah. He didn't play with us. He didn't spend time with us. So um, I really clung on to Isaiah 54, where God tells us that he is our savior, our redeemer, our husband. I accepted God as being the provider of our, of my little family. And I kept pressing forward. And uh, I had devotionals in my office. I was still working as a comprehensive sex educator. I was actually managing other outreach workers. Um, I, without knowing it, I had uh, drug users coming into my office reading my devotionals um, because they were there cleaning um, after, after, you know, after we would leave. And so if I would take a devotional, a lot of them would say, I need you to bring that back because I take a break and I read it. Um, And I just started becoming, and and I don't mean this arrogantly, but not knowing, I started becoming light and salt in my office. And uh, and then finally to the point that I I finally realized I couldn't work there anymore. Yeah. And I had to do something about it. Um, And so it was, was, it's a a bigger story, um, but it was a huge journey of needing to, it was really a journey of God saving me from my own self and my own decisions and then offering me that forgiveness of everything I had done, not only to myself, but what I had taught other people in the community. Yeah. And he redeemed what was evil and he's used it for good. And I love that characteristic of God that it's not like he just, he only moved you out of that industry and into something else that would have been fine too. But he literally like, turned what you were doing on its head. So he's using all of the experiences that you had before Christ. And rather than just saying, let's forget about that, but no, even more, I'm sure, frustrating for Satan using all of those experiences, not to accuse you, but 
for his glory and for the good of other people. And isn't that what Christ does? And that is full redemption. Yes. When God can use our past to now glorify him in our present and our future and bring others to him. And so that has been an interesting journey to see how he can use me because even in, in church today, there are certain people who are attracted and know that they can come and speak to me, yeah. uh, whether they know my story or not, but they know that they're safe with me. Uh, and so I'm still working with the marginalized because they feel safe with me. Uh, and it's the same love of Christ that I can serve them with. And so if he can forgive me, then I know he can forgive them. Yeah. And so it's it's been a great journey to see him use my past that I was so ashamed of to now glorify him and help other people. Let me just ask is... Planned Parenthood and the comprehensive sex education and gosh, there's so many different facets and so many different people and so much money behind it. All of that world that you left, would you say that it's still doing the same things today, covering up for abusers, grooming children? Is it worse? Is it different? It's absolutely the same. I think that technology has allowed them to do a lot more, but literally the curricula are no different. The comprehensive sex education that we provided in the 90s is exactly what they're providing today, uh, but just on steroids. There's even more. Uh, you know, now we have amaze.com, all these little cartoons that are yeah, presented I've to heard children. Of that. It, it's, it's incredibly, it, it's shocking that it's even legal that those videos exist. Right. Um, so they just have the ability to, to go further, but, but so do we. You know, we have mm. the ability to go further as well. Um, but it hasn't changed. They continue to feel the same way. They're, they're not reporting trafficking. Um, they're very proud of what they're doing. Planned Parenthood told me that they were proud to serve pimps and their prostitutes because then where else would they get abortions and who else would provide them with health care? So they felt very proud about what they were doing. We're working with people who are very distorted in their mind and in their hearts. Yes. And they don't fully understand what they're doing. But they are what we need to understand is that they are doing it and they're doing it aggressively. And we need to become that barrier to make it stop. Yeah. Everyone is seeking to disciple and indoctrinate your child. If you break down that word indoctrinate, it's just placing your doctrines inside someone. I think that a lot of people say, oh, all indoctrination is bad. Well, no, some doctrines are good and some doctrines are bad. And actually, we should be teaching our doctrines to our children. And if we don't, the world is going to. Um, can you just give a final message? We talked um, a little bit uh, a little bit ago. You were told that the education that you were giving was compassionate, that it was empathetic, and that teaching abstinence and self control and honoring your body and others' bodies was a form of judgment. I still think that a lot of women, especially moms and Christian women, are manipulated by that language today, especially in the abortion debate. We're told. Well, well, if you don't believe in legally killing the child inside the womb, you better be pro-comprehensive sex education because we're told that that is what is preventing abuse. That's what's preventing unwanted pregnancies and the empathetic, kind, loving, even Christ-like thing to do is to present all of these things to kids and to never say something is right or wrong. So what message do you have to Christian women who find themselves manipulated and bullied by what I call toxic empathy? Right. As soon as I left, I learned something very important. 
there's a big difference between love and compassion in the world and a big difference between love and compassion as a Christian. And um, in the world, I was very loving and compassionate to the children and to the other adults in the high-risk neighborhoods that I served. But I serve them not with truth. And so when I serve them with love and compassion, I led them down a road of high-risk behavior Hmm. with this false belief that the condom lubrication was going to work. And because we knew it wouldn't, they would then, we were, they were always encouraged to get tested for diseases and encouraged to come in to have abortions. That is not loving and compassionate. That is leading someone down a dark path of more hurt to their body and to their spirits and their emotions. That's not compassionate. What was compassionate was when God met me where I was at. And see, this is what comprehensive sex educators say that they do. Meet them where they're at and then serve them. Well, they meet them where they're at and they continue to lead them into high-risk behaviors. God met me where I was at and he loved me and he took me out of that into a better life. A life where I wasn't exposed to disease. A life where my child would not be fatherless. It's, it's, there's a huge difference. So when you're serving with love and compassion and you don't have truth, then you are going to be led a very dark road. And so my message for those women out there who want to express love and compassion by affirming behaviors that are actually harming people, the more you affirm that, the more you ignore it, the more it'll be normalized in your own mind and that darkness will change you. And that darkness will change your household as well. And so until we know what is true and you understand what standards you're going to choose to follow, your, your, um, the, the path that you go down is going to be very different. Yes. Yeah. And so if you choose secular humanism and you want to use that as your guide, then you will have to deal with the diseases and the unplanned pregnancies and such. But if you have this other standard of valuing your body, understanding how you were created, then you will have a different path altogether. Yeah. So I think we have to understand that our love and our compassion is guided. The rudder of that is what truth are you believing? Yes. Have you read Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy? I have. Yes. If you haven't had her on your show yet, I don't know if you have, then you Not should because y'all would be wonderful together. But thank you so much for your insight and for sharing your story. You are going to help so many moms and just parents, people um, today. And I really recommend everyone go subscribe to your show. They can listen to it wherever they listen to podcasts, The Monica Klein Show. Um, is there anything else you want to tell people? Where can they go to find you? Sure. They can also find me at it takes a family.org. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Monica. Thanks, Allie. 